Hello, welcome to the Dispatched Podcast Week in Review. My name is Paul Cross. I'm delighted to be joined once again by Felicity McNeil, Chair of Better Access Australia. Hi, Felicity. Hi, Paul. Nice to see you. It's been an interesting week, as yes. always. Love it when Parliament returns. <laughs> it did return this week, didn't it? We'll get, we'll get to that. <laughs> so we've got a few things to discuss, but it's the week in which Rare Cancers Australia hosted their CAN Forum in Parliament House in Canberra, which I actually th- I thought was really interesting. The focus was on genomics, the potential of genomics, which is a conversation which is becoming more prominent. The shared stories of patients was really interesting because it was, again, case studies of the system <laughs> struggling to walk. I think I described it as the system can't walk. Genomics yeah, yeah. is running, and so we had – patients talking about the challenge of being diagnosed and then not even being able to access old treatments, let alone new ones? Uh, Sadly, it's the same message that patients have been delivering in those various forums, whether it's the Rare Cancer Forum, whether it's PharmOz. You and I have talked about it before. The 2021 PharmOz really stood out to me where four very brave patients sat on a stage and said it wasn't about the medicines It was about what Better Access argues for all the time. Without diagnosis, there is no treatment. Genomics is four or five leaps forward in respect of axing diagnosis in Australia and as someone who is continually putting her head against a brick wall for newborn screening where be careful people who are arguing for genomics. I got an election commitment and it's still been kicked down the road and that actually got funding. The problem here is that Genomics is is a really great opportunity, but all the ethical issues that the minister articulated in his speech, all the moral issues, all the the cost issues, those are the same things that have allowed them to put newborn screening on hold for 30 years. We watched it only as recently as six months ago. Oh, well, do do people want to know that they carry a disease? Do Do we want to know that a baby is sick? Government uses particularly in genomics, the ethics card to slow everything right down. We have been working on genomics now for 20 years. Oh, yeah, it's, it's not new. And I, I heard a lot of things at the meeting. And, again, congratulations to Rare Cancers Australia for putting it together. Christine's done a, done a great job there. But a lot of the, a lot of the issues raised just were not, are not issues. One of the issues raised was, was ge- it's genetic discrimination with private health insurance. Private health insurance is a community-rated product. You can't discriminate on any basis. You can't discriminate if someone's a smoker, if someone's overweight, if someone's got profoundly bad health. It's community-rated. Everyone pays the same premium but for a lifetime health cover loading in some circumstances. The example used was someone had had a genetic test, had determined that they're at risk of certain things and wanted a surgical intervention and joined a health fund with the idea of getting it. And the health fund (laughs) required them to serve their waiting period that well, that was described as genetic discrimination, and it's not. No, it's not. If I needed a knee replacement, I would have that was served out the same waiting period. So I completely agree with you. A lot of the stuff, a lot of the barriers that have been sort of identified, are not barriers; they're excuses. Yes, and I think that waiting period one, and 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 I hope that someone's actually sat and worked with that patient and explained to them what the issue was. And the reason I say that's important is if you keep articulating that then your argument is lost, mm. whereas the issue that you've got is the the broader one, the, the genuine discrimination, which is if you have um, 
diagnosis and you're, you're included in some of these other things like life insurance, that is where there is discrimination or perceived discrimination because we, you are actually rated based on your health risk. Well, it's a risk-rated like product. Life insur- exactly, it's, and that's yeah. a risk-rated product, but that's what we accept. Yeah. But like I said, I, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that, like I said, we say it at Better Access all the time, without diagnosis there is no treatment. Mm. Listening to Caitlin Delaney's conversation about needing to get actually access to off-label old drugs. old drugs. There's another good example of something that the government's been reviewing, researching and putting ideas out for now for five or six years. It goes nowhere. So what are we going to do? What What is the, the diagnosis odyssey? It's a really good conversation and my support for rare cancers on this one is that they're probably going to the very extreme of what's needed. Starting bold, you have to start bold yeah, so the system, can, yes. the system can go incrementally because, like I said, please learn from our experience with newborn screening, which is for 30 years everyone just sat around and said anything you give us will be great. We got an election commitment and it's still a huge problem. Yeah, so I please the, keep up the fight. I thought the, and, and I'm sorry to say that this made me laugh and it's made me laugh for most of the rest of the, rest of the week when Mark Butler came and gave his health department written speech about how – Amazing the period of technological change in healthcare innovation is and how we have to be agile in responding to that. And then he said, but we can't rush it. <laughs> and, and as you know, I was in tears for about two hours and and tears laughing, that is. Yes. And then he said he's established, he has established a cross-jurisdictional advisory committee, mm-hmm. cross-jurisdictional, so st- federal and state governments, which means absolutely nothing will get done. And he's essentially kicked it down the road for a couple of years. Now, he's not the first minister to do that, so this isn't a criticism of him in that respect, but I'm going to guess he knew exactly what he was saying, that he's just bitten some time. Now, Mm. Greg Hunt established a task force, I think, to do exactly the same thing 18 months ago, and that task force has now become an advisory committee I mean, I think a task force sounds a lot more action oriented than an advisory. Yeah, me too. I think if I want task orientation, sometimes good. Get down to doing, not contemplating. And I know people go, "Oh, Paul, you're so cynical." No, that announcement was incredibly cynical. That was. It was very cynical to say we need to be agile, and then to say, "Well, but you know, we can't rush it." Well, I don't think there's any risk of rushing anything on genomics. I think it is really, really hard. It is a system level change, no doubt about it. But we've been talking about it for years. Well, and it was spoken about at your conference about the the delay access through MSAC to put diagnostics on the medical benefits schedule for yes. pathology, that by the time patients can actually get access to something, that we've had the technology to look at something and to do more comprehensive screening, but we're not allowed to use it. So it, it is a I, – I think at the moment for the, for the sector – the individualization of we need diagnosis here or we need diagnosis there, I think we need to come together as a collective and under one banner have without diagnosis there is no treatment because it doesn't matter whether you have cancer or you have a rare disease or you have a chronic disease, it's the lack of diagnosis that denies you access to the treatment and the system's really quite happy with the delayed diagnosis because it delays treatment which delays cost to the PBS which of course as you would know from newborn screening, MSAC was very happy to say if we don't screen we don't treat well that's that's the problem because if we and again i want to congratulate rare cancers australia for the report they did because it's ambitious and you read it and my response to it was well that shouldn't be that hard all they're talking about is profiling tumors 
a lot of other countries are already doing it. They're well down the path. The UK's been doing that for years. Yeah, since 2015. So... Of course, the obvious implication is that if we profile tumours, it's going to have to change the treatment paradigm. As David Thomas and the Omico Project are working on is that clinical trial and the library of treatments. Now, you and I both know that in, in a decision-making framework that is one test, one drug, we are light years from being able to contemplate that. And then I see all the barriers thrown up to it, which become excuses not to do anything, and it gets pitched into an expert, a so-called expert advisory group, which, as we all know, is the policy equivalent of feeding the chooks. They've just kicked it down the road, and that that's frustrating for me. But I don't like to see people welcoming those sorts of announcements because, to me, it's just <laughs> it's. I understand, I understand in that yes minister way that doing something like that just buys you time to think about it. And no doubt that advisory committee will contemplate the challenge here because it is system level and it's going to involve federal and state governments. And we know that when those two levels of government get together, generally nothing happens. Well, we do, and and, and I know you want to move on in the conversation, but I remind everybody about what the National Blood Authority is like. And so remember it's <laughs> – Such a good example. It's draft framework for considering <laughs> new example. listings yeah. in respect of blood products in Australia. It's draft framework has been draft since 2011 <laughs> and how it is done and it goes to the, to the advisory committee, the board, mm. which is of course comprised of federal and state and then they decide whether something should actually be considered or evaluated and then they kick it over to MSAC and MSAC might kick it back. And meanwhile, the system churns and churns and uh, sometimes things randomly just appear added on in a tender and sometimes they're not. But there is no transparent process and the processes that are on there, you can see it literally takes years and years and the system, because it's actually everybody coming together, we're seeing it with cell therapies. It's the same issue that people are all arguing about in in that evolutionary space. So please learn the lessons. Oh my gosh, it's like last week. Learn the lessons of history which is if you do not intervene and stop this process that's going forward this particular way, um, we are going to have a whole heap of problems. Yes, and it's going to be – well, this has obviously been put beyond the next election. Mm. We'll see what happens. But, again, I I want to congratulate Rare Cancers because they created a platform for what is a really important discussion. I thought the patient stories were, as always, they're heartbreaking because they're not, they weren't describing an issue around genomics. They were describing a 20-year-old issue around diagnostic and access to what I heard were pretty old drugs in a lot of, in a lot of cases. It's the same story, like I said. It's been at each rare cancers forum. It's at each Medicines Australia forum where patients talk. Mm. It's not about the treatments. It's about the diagnosis and the delayed diagnosis. And, and then we heard a lot of the barriers, which were just not, well, if they were barriers, they're easily resolved. Yes, is genetic discrimination a risk? Well, it might be a risk, but okay. So, if private health insurers have to fund surgical procedures they don't currently fund, then the premiums will just go up. That's how it works. That's yeah. a that is a that is a price regulated product. The, the government can compel them to cover certain things, and then it can compel them <laughs> to to charge particular prices for it. It's a highly regulated product, and it stops them actually covering certain things as much as it they absolutely want to stops them. So mm. people don't know this, but those products, every product change you make in private health insurance, you've got to get government approval for. Mm. So it's a highly regulated product, and then you go to things like risk rated life insurance. Well, life insurance already discriminates. Yep. 
it comprehensively discriminates against people. So this would not be a form of new discrimination. It would be a revised version of the existing discrimination because it is a risk-rated product and by its nature, it discriminates. Now, if governments don't like that, well, that's easy. They can change the regulations. <laughs> there's, no, there's no problem. But again, insurance is, is a priced product, priced based on risk. It's very rational. Yeah, so if you increase the risk profile of people covered, the premiums are going to go up. That's that's the way it works in those sorts of products. So I just heard a lot of things that, you know, ethics to me, yeah, it's obviously an issue in, in a lot of what people do, but let's not make it a barrier mm. or an excuse, an excuse to change. So it was, look, it was an interesting one. I actually enjoyed the discussion. And as I say, again, fantastic job by them for creating a platform for what, as always, are compelling patient stories and ones that give us reason to reflect on what the real issues are in this system. So reflecting on real issues, mm-hmm. there was a fairly big issue over the weekend which you wrote about on Monday. Oh, yeah, that one. That one. Yeah, I don't think any anyone in Australia woke up feeling great on Sunday and I'm not saying that about any one group in particular. I don't think it was a great experience for the country, full stop and people can blame who they want for that. I thought- You wrote an interesting article. Did you get much feedback? <laughs> well, usually you get silence. I got a, li- a little bit of feedback, but yeah, my, my position was I don't think multinational companies should be involving themselves in domestic political matters in Australia. Now, I believe that the positions of these companies and the executives within them were genuine and heartfelt, and I, I respect that. I don't think it helped, and I think we saw that. We've seen it over a number of years and a number of campaigns that the intervention of corporations or celebrities or however you might want to describe others in support of a particular issue rarely aids it. It was a pretty poorly run campaign, the, the Yes campaign, and you could see it towards the end. And, and say this is an ex-political campaigner, I'd be curious about the process companies went through in making their decisions to be active on this, whether it was driven by individuals or a corporate policy, I'm going to guess they're now going through the process of reconciling the fact that they have put themselves at odds, probably with the majority of their of their employees, and certainly the significant majority of Australians. Yeah, I, I think it was very interesting, and I, I watched those that had come out so strongly in support. And I, I do have an issue with a, a foreign company, foreign-owned company, telling me what I should do. Yeah, I, um, I do too. And I, I don't tell Americans what they should do with their Bill of Rights or their Constitution. And I think that's important that we all respect sovereignty of each country. But I also was concerned that then the quick pivot to oh, well, now we all have to do something. So my question is, well, what are you going to do? If you really believe that First Nations health is such a huge issue, then what are you doing? Where are you putting your money? Where's your money going? What are you actually going to do to transform the system for First Nations people tomorrow? And then the second question I would ask is Parliament has been a difficult space this week where this has been very uncomfortably debated, but there were other things put forward, such as a Royal Commission Mm. into child abuse, Mm. um, which on a personal level I completely support, and I will say that till I'm blue in the face, I completely support it. Anything that protects children has to be done. And also the quest for an audit of the way the money is spent. So my question is if 
all these companies came out and said that we should support a voice to Parliament, are they all going to express an opinion now going forward on everything that's discussed in response to what Australia needs to do next? And I think this maybe goes to the point that this, the, the idea that a political campaign, and this, is a, this was a campaign for constitutional change, anyone with even the most vague understanding of Australian constitutional history, and you know this is a particular expertise of mine, I suppose, but academic expertise is that these things have a terrible record of success. They are almost always contentious. And even when they have bipartisan support, it doesn't necessarily mean they succeed. In fact, some of the most contentious moments in, a, in the history of Australian Federation have been around referenda, uh, the, the conscription referendums in World War One, the attempt to ban the Communist Party after World War Two. These were incredibly – these tore the country apart. Yeah. They were incredibly contentious. So the idea – that you would sort of get through this process and that wouldn't be politicised, to me was a – it represented or indicated a profound misunderstanding of the history of those things. This is Australia's most important founding document and we've actually seen it at work this week where the High Court has struck down – A Dan Andrews special. A, a Victorian <laughs> government attempt to impose an excise because the Constitution says – our rule book says, no, only the Commonwealth – can impose an excise. I did think that people, some people didn't sort of came into this a little bit insensitive to the history. And I wonder if on reflection they might go, mm, if we had our time again. But I, I would ask, and, and it's exactly the point that you make, is that if you were going to involve yourselves as multinational companies, and don't get me wrong, I've got a lot of respect for these companies, these companies are incredibly innovative and do an amazing job in making the lives of people better. But that's different to involving yourself in a political debate. And so if, if you are going to decide to do that, well, what are the rules around that? What rules do you have about what you will involve yourself in and what you won't? That, that would be my question because everything is political. So I struggle to get even the most rudimentary position from many companies, many of these same companies, on on issues around the PBS. Well, I was going to ask, I mean, how many – I didn't see on LinkedIn a whole heap of things about the actual uh, strategic agreement and no, the, the no, price I, cuts I, I or can't, I can't even HTA get – I cannot get public positions on issues to do with their actual core business, which is products. Mm. And then yet – I read all these public statements supporting one side of an incredibly contentious political debate. Do you, do you think that's a, a broader corporate issue in Australia right now, which is that we can't be seen to the integrity of our products, so we don't talk about things that are directly related to us. We talk about something that's over in someone else's ballywick because that's safe to have a, an opinion on? Yeah, possibly. I, I, look, I don't, I don't know. I've spoken to people about it. I've been in discussions about this which were, look, I have to say, incredibly uncomfortable at times. Mm. I thought the whole discussion here, the whole campaign sort of let the genie out of the bottle in a way and I've been scrupulous and I'm going to remain scrupulous in, in my position. My position though as a, someone with experience of political campaigns is if multi, multinational companies wanted this campaign to win, they would have been better to choose silence because in the end, unfortunately, whether you like it or not, and we've seen some pretty disgraceful comments about Australian voters this week by a lot of people about education levels and things like that. Yeah. 
But if you are genuine about that, what you did inadvertently or otherwise is you put yourself in, a, in on one side of a discussion of an issue that put you at odds, and the poll said this weeks out, that was putting you at odds with the mainstream of the Australian electorate. Now, you can, you can, you can say what you want about that, but I think as a company, if I'd taken that public position, I'd then be saying, did we help or hinder? Were we, were we aiding this project? That, that thing in the last couple of weeks where the Yes campaign at 125 healthcare organisations mm. signed that authorised political statement. For those of you who don't know, that was a political campaign statement. Yeah. That was a political campaign statement. That, that was the equivalent of two weeks out from the next election saying vote Labor, vote vote Labor or vote Liberal. That mm. was the equivalent of doing that. Yeah. Now, you may not see it that way. but sorry, vote Nationals or vote Greens, got to cover yeah. everyone. Vote Teal, <laughs> sorry, vote Independent, vote, vote sorry. Whoever. But, that, but that was, you may not see it that way, but the law. The law does. The law does. And so you you have to think about that. Now, we saw the bin fire that was Qantas support for well, anything in the last few months. But, <laughs> Except flights on time. <laughs> but but I, think, I, think, I do think. I do think companies just need to reflect on that and maybe if I'm sure many already are doing this, having a conversation about how did we get ourselves in that position and how are we going to reconcile the dissonance between our public position and, and the wider community? I know it was heartfelt. I know people genuinely believed it. I just think the industry and all companies have to decide what they are. Are you an activist in a political sense or are you a company serving the interests of whatever you do, in the case of a pharmaceutical company, providing medicines? I think unlike many of the other companies that were out in the the public domain, I think ironically the thing that pharmaceutical companies feel hurts them with respect to the PBS may be a saving grace for them in this space, which is a lot of people don't know who you are. Um, so many of the companies that chose to sign that political statement, unless it's my, particularly my medicine that, you know, I'm getting in hospital or something, or I'm on a clinical trial, or I know something about it. A lot of people don't know exactly who you are. That said, some of you have some really big posters in um, various airports, so we do know who you are, but. Oh yeah, they do, don't they? Yeah, they do. Some of them have some really huge. (laughs) And so, yeah, we will know who you are, but I think that's probably the thing that, will protect them. So it's a bit like during COVID, suddenly we all knew, I'm not going to use brand names, but we all knew which which vaccine we were taking. Oh, yes. And suddenly we, suddenly you knew a drug company. I think that's largely disappeared again. It might still be the place with the vaccines for, for COVID, but we've moved back into the world where no one really knows who provides my medicine. I just know it's there when I need it. So that's probably, they're probably going to get away with it a little bit more than say the Qantases, the AFLs, the NRLs, those who actually chose to make the banks, oh gosh, they were having a lovely time because their brand was front and centre and their brand was at odds with everything else that the banks were doing to people with cost of living. And and as I say, look, I I know some of those companies who supported it are actually doing quite a bit behind the scenes. They They don't make a lot of noise about it, but they're sponsoring scholarships and students and doing stuff in communities. I have a lot of respect for that. I understand that it was heartfelt. I respect the individual executives, and I've known many of them for a long time, so I know that they genuinely believe it. But I'll put it to you this way. On the day that Australia voted in that referendum, New Zealand voted in an election. So of those companies who took a public position in Australia on the referendum, how many took a public position on the New Zealand election, and why is it different? 
Absolutely. I mean, if any organisations were going to talk about Pharmac. Yes. I mean, um, if there was a, if there was a, an issue that needed to be resolved. But you, you get my point. Right? I absolutely they're, they're, get your point. They're the same thing. They're yes. both political issues covered by political campaign laws. Those things happened on the same day. And how many of those companies who publicly, they didn't express a view, they support, actively supported one side of a political campaign in Australia, how many of them took a side, took a position and supported one side of New Zealand's election campaign? And obviously it's a rhetorical question. Absolutely, it's a rhetorical question. But I, I think it's a, we at Better Access Australia are the same as you. We've never expressed an, an opinion on uh, the recent constitutional vote, so and we will continue not to do so. But it's hard watching right now because our country is struggling mm. to actually build something positive and come back together to be proud of who we are and to 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 move forward in a way that's restorative of our trust in each other and our respect for each other. I think that's the thing that I've really struggled with, which is you've you've remarked about is the way that people talk to each other and denigrate each other for the purpose of an opinion on an issue. And we don't manage to progress many things when we speak that way to each other. And I I hope the the parliament can actually find a way to also engage constructively. As I say, I started this by writing about it for Monday, basically saying I think everyone should just take a step back and have a think about as a company, what's what's your role? And if we're going to take positions on political issues, well, how far do we go with that? What is the boundary around that? Because I'll end by saying I cannot get companies to give me straight answers on the most basic issue relating to PBS policy, and yet some felt comfortable talking about a matter of constitutional change. Felicity, thank you so much. Thanks, Paul. I know you're speaking at a conference in Adelaide this week and I want to promote that. It's the Australian Pompeii Association. Yes, um, wonderful group of people who are desperately waiting for newborn screening to be yeah, added, yeah. as promised by the Minister. Um, so a shout-out to Raymond Say. She's been leading that group in front and centre for such a long time and uh, he's, a, he's a very special individual, that man. He is. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Paul.